Before we begin, I just want to bring your attention to the marriage ministry luncheon that is up here on the board. Sunday, October 9th, 1230, 2.30, child care provided upon request. <clears throat> so please take note of that and plan for it. So today I'm I'm happy to introduce and pray for our speaker, Janet Snyder. So would you join me? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity to meet today and start a new year, Lord, of being in your word. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you that your word is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, for Jan and her time spent studying, researching, and being in your word. And I pray, Father, that what she presents to us today would uniquely touch us in the way that you have ordained. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, to Jan's uh, study on it, what she presents. And Father, I pray that as we continue in our small groups, that that striving to know you better and to know how you want to speak into our lives would continue as we meet and share and um are like iron against iron against each other. Help us to sharpen one another, Lord, in faith. And um, thank you, Lord, for the, the blessing of being together, Lord, and being in your word. And I pray, Lord, that Janet would be so aware of your spirit with her that she would feel your peace and confidence in what you have done in her. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So good morning. It's good to see everyone. And it's a special um, privilege to be able to present God's word this morning to you um, from first uh, for second Samuel. We're in second Samuel now. <laughs> second Samuel one. So we begin our study of second Samuel today with these words. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. This establishes the context for the rest of the chapter, and we will need to look back into 1 Samuel in order to understand what will take place in this chapter. For those who were not with us last year, I hope this short review from chapters 27 to 31 will help in understanding what is taking place here. Saul had been pursuing David in order to kill him, and David had, in desperation, escaped to Philistine territory with his 600 men and their households and his own family. He escaped to Achish, king of Gath, and upon David's request, he was granted the city of Ziklag in Philistine territory for his company to live. While there, for over a year, David made raids against the enemies of Israel, but left no survivors, so that when he brought the spoils to Achish, there was no one to contradict the stories he told Achish about raising, raiding Israelite territory. After this, the Philistines gathered to fight Israel, and Achish made clear his expectation that David go with the Philistines into battle against Israel. But as they gathered for battle, the other lords of the Philistines were angry about David's Hebrew band, thinking they might defect during the battle. 
And so David was sent back to Ziklag with his men. David must have been relieved not to have to participate in this conflict. But that wouldn't have lasted long because when he and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day, they found the city burned and all the women and children had taken captive by the Amalekites. David's men were bitter and even thought of stoning him. But David sought the Lord and pursued the Amalekites. He was able to recover all the wives and children, the spoil that had been taken, an additional spoil from the victory over the Amalekites. David then returned to Ziklag, and it is here that we pick up the story. For two days, David was in Zik- there, in, there in Ziklag. Presumably, he and his men would have rested from battle. Perhaps David wondered about the battle between Israel and the Philistines and took some time for reflection. Most likely, as Bergen points out in his commentary, they were busy getting their households in order amid the shambles they had become. I view this, as does Joyce Baldwin, as a very low point in the events of David's life. After all, not only had he been living a lie in enemy territory, but his men had also been so embittered by the Ziklag raid that they had spoken of stoning him. It is out of this very low place that shortly David would be displaying his character in a way that shines brightly, but we will get to that a bit later. We pick up at verse 2. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. His appearance would indicate mourning, and because of this, there would be an expectation of bad news. David questions the young man about the battle, and in his answer about the defeat, tells David that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David wants verification of this news, so the young man launches into this story in verse 6. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, this is a different story than the one told in 1 Samuel 31, and that's in your booklet. Looking back, we are told that the Philistines killed Saul's sons, including Jonathan, and that Saul was badly wounded. Saul asked his armor-bearer to kill him, but he did not, because as the scripture says, he feared greatly. When he refused, Saul fell on his own sword, after which his armor-bearer did the same. 
But David only had the report of the Amalekite at this point, and he had brought tokens that indicated that he certainly was close to the situation, and this lent some credibility to his story. So what are we to understand about this conflict in reports? Most of the commentators I read agree that the narrator in chapter 31 is to believe, be believed. There were obviously others who saw what happened and survived to report the story as found in chapter 31. So what would have motivated the young man to fabricate part of the story? We have seen that he paid homage to David and that he brought the tokens of kingship. So he obviously knew that David would be the new king. Perhaps he was hoping to gain favor with David by bringing this news. But as Alistair Begg points out, this was a grave miscalculation on his part. He failed to understand David's respect for the Lord's anointed. So rather than reward this young man, David and his men tore their clothes and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Here, David and his men expressed their great grief over the tragedy that had taken place in the nation and among the people of God. God had brought judgment on the house of Saul, and many of God's people had been lost, and the nation and her God had been dishonored. As Richard Phillips points out, God's judgment is always a call for grief. David's reaction here shows what was in his heart. Our reaction to sudden news will reliably show what has been cherished in our hearts. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, challenges us to our obligation to mourn over the unbelief, apostasy, and coldness in the visible church of our day as David mourned over the condition of Israel. He points out that as evangelicals, it's easy for us to critique the apathy over faithful doctrine, the flirtations with paganism, and the infatuation with a politically correct moral social agenda, which infects bodies of the institutional church. These critical attitudes can lead to evangelical arrogance, which is itself a contradiction of the gospel. Unbelief, error, or division in the church should instead lead us to mourn and intercede for her that God would restore the light of her witness. Finally, in this first section of the text, David dealt with the Amalekite young man. In questioning him, David made sure that he was not a recent member of the Israelite community, but one who should have known better than to commit this deed. David asks, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Did he not see the armor bearer refuse to kill Saul because he feared greatly? And as Joyce Baldwin points out, surely he would have known that David had avoided doing the very thing the Amalekite man is claiming to do even when given several opportunities to do so earlier in his life. 
he would have known that David had refused to take Saul's life because he was the Lord's anointed, the one especially chosen and set apart for the kingship. By asking the question that he did and implying perhaps that the man should have been afraid, David gives this Amalekite an opportunity to retract his story, but he does not. The young Amalekite still seemed to think he would be rewarded for his deed and that David would be pleased. Finally, David says in verse 16, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. As Mary Evans notes, if this is an exact quote from this young man, then David's decision to have him executed is not exceedingly harsh, but warranted. (coughs) The man's lies resulted in the exact opposite of what he intended them to produce. David had been spared by God's providence from being complicit in any way in Saul's death. He had not sought Saul's life, even though Saul sought his. He trusted God to deal with Saul in his own time. He did not participate in the battle in which Saul was killed, but instead mourned this great loss. According to Alistair Begg, ultimately this story can only be understood in light of Jesus. All human kings will fail, as Saul has failed, including David, who would fail as well. These failures cause us to long for our king, Jesus, who will come to ultimately set things right. We come now to this beautiful lament that David wrote to remember and mourn this day in the history of Israel. David undoubtedly knew that Saul's death had paved the way for his ascension to the kingship. But he chose to mourn Israel's losses rather than focus on his own relief and prospects. This lament displays David's character and his heart for the people of God. Much of the beauty of the poetry itself is lost because of the translation from Hebrew to English, but the beauty of the emotion is not. David instructs this lament called the bow, which is possibly a reference to Jonathan's bow, to be taught to the men of Judah, so preserving the memory of Saul and his house and stressing their unity with all Israel. It was preserved in the book of Jashar, a book of poetry and heroic exploits, which has since been lost, but is believed to have been a source book for the writing of 2 Samuel. A lament, according to Dale Ralph Davis, is a formal expression of grief, one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, repeated. So let's read it. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Galboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, 
the bow of Jonathan not turned back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. In the first section, David mourned Saul. Your glory can also be translated gazelle, according to the commentators. This creates the picture of a strong, mighty, majestic head of the people of God. The hopes of Israel expressed in his kingship were smashed with his death on Mount Gilboa. As David exclaims, how the mighty have fallen. The next few lines show David's desire to suppress the news, specifically mentioning the cities of Gath and Ashkelon, major Philistine cities, because undoubtedly when the Philistines hear it, it will create rejoicing in the streets, not just because of the victory itself, but because of the shame it would bring on the God of Israel. David is concerned about the honor of God and his perception by other nations. In the next section, David pronounces a curse on Mount Gilboa because it was there that Saul and Jonathan lost their lives. Saul and Jonathan are described as beloved and lovely. They were brave and strong. David chooses to focus on the battles Saul won at the beginning of his kingship, such as the victory over the Ammonites. 1 Samuel 14.47 says, Wherever he, that's Saul, turned, he routed them. He did valiantly. He describes Saul and Jonathan as swifter than eagles and stronger than lions, suggesting their military prowess. Jonathan also displayed his bravery in battle and was successful against great odds, as recorded in 1 Samuel 14. David says that in life and death, they were not divided. Jonathan was loyal to Saul and participating with the army on the various campaigns, even though he disagreed with his father's treatment of David. He fought alongside his father in the battle when they both perished. David tells the women to weep over Saul because he has created prosperity as illustrated by clothing them luxuriously and providing ornaments of gold for them. He ends this section with the exclamation, how the mighty have fallen once again. Then David moves from addressing the men of Israel, the daughters of Israel, and even the mountains toward his own personal lament over the loss of his very close personal friend, Jonathan. Jonathan was truly dear to David and the bond between them is described as being stronger than the bond between husband and wife. Jonathan's loyalty to David was extraordinary, as he loved David as his own soul, 
and gave up his own rights to the kingship in favor of David. This evokes in me a beautiful picture of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. Jesus put aside his rights in order that through his death we might become his daughters. David had lost his most trusted friend in Jonathan, and it must have left a huge hole in his heart. He ends the lament in the same way he began, how the mighty have fallen. I think that this lament represents a high point in David's life because it displays his character and his heart for God and God's people. David did not rejoice over the death of the person who sought to kill him. But instead, as Alistair Begg points out, he showed his love for him. How is it that David was able to love his persecutor? How was he able to write this beautiful and moving tribute to Saul and Jonathan? I believe it's because by God's grace, David had developed a heart of forgiveness and mercy towards Saul. How was David able to forgive someone who had behaved as an enemy toward him? As I thought about that, I realized that many of you, along with myself, have experienced betrayal and pain at the hands of someone close to you, a spouse, a parent, a child, close friend, or perhaps even a church or ministry leader. Saul had been a mentor and David had been like a member of his family. But all that changed as Saul was taken over by his jealousy. How did David arrive at a place of forgiveness? How can we? Now, the suggestions I'm going to give are not intended to be one, two, three, do these things, and you'll be able to forgive, or that this is an easy process, or that it necessarily produces reconciliation. But I think it's helpful to consider David's example. What are the means of grace that God provided for David to reach the place of forgiveness? I can think of three. David had strong confidence in the Lord. He believed God's promises given through Samuel. He delighted in God's word, as in Psalm 19. And he embraced the Lord as his rock. In Psalm 52, he says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Or in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David made the Lord his refuge as he meditated on the character of God, his faithfulness, his mercy, his sovereignty, and his justice. He knew that God was fully able to fulfill his purposes in the world and in David's life and bring him to the kingship. In Psalm 57, he alternates between describing his treacherous circumstances and God's love and faithfulness. Sisters, we have God's word, all of it, and his promises to assure us of his love and faithfulness, and we can know that his purposes will be fulfilled in us. Secondly, David poured out his heart to the Lord in his distress. Many of his psalms include those cries to the Lord. Psalm 142, with my voice I cry out to the Lord, with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. 
Likewise, sisters, the Lord hears our cries for mercy. When I was in that very dark night in my life, I wrote down my struggles in a journal. In this way, I brought my complaint to the Lord, and I know that he heard me. A few years ago, I happened to be cleaning out my books and came across some of these journals. I was shocked, although I shouldn't have been, by the pain and anger expressed there, the raw emotions, but the Lord was not shocked. As I put my thoughts and emotions before the Lord, he reminded me of his love, mercy, and provision for me. He gently led me through the process of understanding and experiencing his love for me in new ways, and this led toward forgiveness. Third, David also had faithful friends on whom he could rely for support. We know from the scriptures that Samuel was a man of prayer and most certainly carried the Lord's anointed to the throne of grace for as long as he lived. Jonathan, David's close friend, was a faithful encourager and defender, even risking his own life to speak favorably about him to his father. David's mighty men gave him daily support by their willingness to journey with him day by day. Sisters, we have a community of faith, too, that can pray for us and encourage us with the promises of God from his word and with examples of God's faithfulness. I don't think I will ever know how many of God's people were praying for me in those very difficult times I experienced, and they may never know what an impact their prayers and practical help had on me and my family. Finally, sisters, David could only look forward to the one who was to come, the one to whom his coming kingship pointed, our Savior, Jesus. As we are reminded every time we receive the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave up his life for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. As we more fully experience his forgiveness of our own sins and failures, our hearts are softened toward others who have sinned against us. May the Lord deliver us from an unforgiving, bitter spirit, because we know how much we have been forgiven. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for how it uh, shows us um, just you, your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace toward us. We pray, Father, that in this uh, section, you would have um, reminded us again of your beauty. And we pray for our small groups as we go to them, that you would help us in our discussions and in our care for one another. We thank you for this and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.